Good evening, everyone. So, today we're celebrating the principle of Guru Guru Tattva, the nature, the truth about the nature of this particular type of divine manifestation, the Guru. And we spoke this morning, we've been speaking year after year on the verses of Sri Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur's Gurvastakam. So this is eighth year, so this morning we discussed the eighth verse at some length. And we also, earlier in the morning, we discussed a little bit from Bhagavad Gita. So I told you we'd speak a little bit more from Bhagavad Gita with regard to this uh, tattva and the ways in which it is mentioned there. Just briefly, and then we can open the uh, discussion to any questions about any of the things we discussed or remotely related issues. Nothing could be too distant since you're all practitioners and of spiritual interest. So, what did we discuss this morning from Gita? Well, first of all, there are a few places only in which this tattva is, is mentioned in the Gita. And one or so the three of them are seem of uh, less consequence than the others. There's mentioned in the first chapter very uh, indirectly where Arjun refers to his superiors as his gurus. Don't draw too much from that, but of course it's significant with regard to what he's up against. But later on in the second chapter, a very significant uh, reference, indirect, although it is, where Arjun actually displays the, uh, there's a change in the temper of the discussion. And um, Arjun reaches a point we might call the teachable moment. He had been arguing with Krishna, putting up a battle of his own, if you will, with regard to the work, the duty at hand, and resisting for various reasons, with references to Dharma Shastra, Artha Shastra, and from different angles of vision. So, what can you teach somebody like that? <laughs> was very strong in their own opinion and resistant and, and so forth. But after he had exhausted his replies, his rebuttal, his obstinance, his refusal, if you will, on different grounds to proceed, then he, he kind of, it's, it's apparent that he, he knew that he wasn't really getting anywhere. Because if he, his, if he thought his arguments were that good, then he wouldn't have ended in the moment of despair that the first chapter ends on with Arjun, the great archer, the greatest of all archers at the time, casting his bow to the ground. Actually, it fell from his hand. He, he was quivering, and it fell from his hand. Put down his bow. This is of huge uh, significance, as I mentioned this morning. If we 
understand the person of Arjun. He was, as I say, the archer of archers, a great and powerful person of leadership quality, very capable of providing for others and so on. But uh, he thought in his confusion that he should become a beggar. This is quite a contrast. Imagine if the, uh, you know, some big political leader decided to become a beggar. If uh, President Obama decided to become a beggar because the country's in such debt. <laughs> so he went out, you know, seriously, he went door to door begging, lived a life of begging. Uh, that would be headlines news for sure. Some would praise him and some would criticize him. But at any rate, this is the kind of contrast that uh, we find in Arjun's character. He, from a great warrior and provider, statesman and so forth, to decide to become a beggar. So he's confused. And he admits that in the second chapter. So it's apparent, if we look carefully at the text, that his own arguments, which were put forth with some force, weren't holding up in his own mind very well. And then at the onset of the second chapter, he, he comes out with it and he says, Karpanya dosha, that I have the fault of Karpanya, Kripana, actually. And the implication of this is that, that I don't know Brahman. I don't know the nature of Brahman. I don't know the nature of the Absolute. And this is the cause of my problem. And this, of course, is the cause of everyone's problem. We're the part and we don't know the, the whole and our relationship to the whole. So we try to find some way to make ourselves useful. <laughs> but it falls short. It's like if we take a part from a machine and then we might find something to do with it, make a something out of it, but <laughs> whatever. But if you connect it to the machine that it's a part of, then its meaning, its life comes to life. The machine may not even operate without it. So how valuable the part becomes. If you, you know, if this comes in the mail and there's one part missing, the whole thing is a disappointment. So the point is that the part is important. A little bit of alliteration there. It's important when it sees itself as the part, when it sees itself as the whole or independent of the whole, then it's of not of much consequence. It causes itself trouble and, and causes problems for others. So this is the predicament of material life. In a nutshell, oh, we don't know the nature of the, of the whole and ourselves in relation to the whole. So problematic. So karpanya dosho, he says, I'm suffering from the fault of karpanya. It means, literally, it means miserliness. It means what? If you know Brahman, if you know the Absolute, if you know this one thing, then your knowledge is complete. You don't need to know anything else. And the misinformation, the ignorance that poses it as knowledge, that informs our actions materially, that cause us to develop a sense of possessiveness in relation to things that don't endure while in pursuit of enduring happiness. This is ignorance. This uh, attachment, then, if you will, false sense of proprietorship. Basically, it arises from lack of understanding of the actual proprietor. If you're an honest person, as I've said on other occasions, and you have a desire to enjoy something, but you find out that it belongs to someone else, then that knowledge of the proprietorship will cause you to back away from it. If you're standing in line at the grocery store 
and someone drops a $20 bill, <laughs> you might want to pick it up and put it in your pocket, but you know it belongs to someone else. Used to be a time years ago that if a young man saw a young lady with a ring on her ring finger, then he would think, oh, she belongs to somebody else. I know that's probably not the best way to talk about it, um, <laughs> but <laughs> times change. But uh, And so anyway, the propensity to connect with her would be diminished. So knowledge of proprietorship and of an object on the part of a, of a decent and honest person diminishes the tendency within that person to take the thing for himself or herself, to enjoy it, to exploit it. So this is the problem then. Lack of knowledge of the Absolute makes us, by the Upanishadic uh, evaluation, miserly. We might be very broad-minded in our own estimation, materially speaking, very good-hearted and upright, very PC and all those such things. But if we don't know Brahman, the Upanishads have weighed in and called us a miser. That's not a very nice word. <laughs> a miser only. Huh? It means who leaves this world not knowing Brahman, leaves this world attached to things that one thinks is their own, which indeed, in fact, does not belong to them. So Arjun has really, in a couple of words, identified the whole problem here. So he says, I don't know, basically he says, I don't know Brahman, so therefore I don't know my Dharma either. Because the whole center of Dharma or appropriate action is the satisfaction of Brahman, of Bhagawan, of the Absolute. So, Sangsadir, Hari Toshanam, the satisfaction of Hari, that is the criterion by which we determine the perfection of an action, the extent to which Bhagavan is pleased. That action is perfect. Whatever it may appear by other standards or estimation or other methods of calculation. And you should know for sure that pleasing Bhagavan will not always be whatever, PC. or <laughs> Rather, more likely it will be unpopular. It will seem a little rash, a little radical. I may have to back up from this. I don't know if I want to... It's a very radical and different uh, perspective. To make Bhagawan the center of our life, they will displace many people in terms of how they see themselves in relation to ourselves and our own self in relation to others. It's another. It's a very different orientation. So Arjun did not have this orientation. In the word he summed it up, I'm miserly. And so I don't know what is my duty. I'm confused about what to do. So, shishasteham sadhimam tvam prapanam. I do prapanam to you and ask you that you will instruct me. So this is the teachable moment then in Arjuna's life, which changes the discourse in the Gita. Now Krishna becomes, takes the position of the instructor, the guru. So, we find like that, of course, Prabhupada, my Guru Maharaj, for example, had a relationship with many different people. But he was only the instructor of certain people who wanted to take instruction. Otherwise, he was friendly with them, and formal, and so forth. And, and they thought that they maybe had you know, more of a mature relationship with Prabhupada, whereas all these fledgling disciples were at his beck and call, and so forth. But actually, they, those students, they had a closer 
relationship with him. With them, he was giving them what he had because they wanted that. Others wanted something else. So, Arjuna now wants the whole package, and of course Krishna is very capable of, of delivering. And the Gita, in one sense, begins here. Krishna begins his discourse. So this is an important section of the Gita where the principle of Guru, Guru Tattva, is brought up. Arjuna becomes the Shishya. He was the friend, now he becomes the student. So the, the very uh, the, the, the nature of the discussion, relationship, there's a shift here. And here we find, this is a nice point also, with regard to for the nature of uh, reciprocal dealings in love, rasam, ananda. In material life, the nature of relationships, reciprocal dealings in love, reaches its apex in the relationship between the teacher and the student, the guru and the disciple. In other words, it's a kind of a dasya bhakti. Dasya bhakti. We know that Madhurya, Kanjugo, Shingar, Rasa, romantic love of uh, that ideal of Radha and Krishna. This is the high point, the apex on the spiritual side of life. Materially speaking, we find all these relationships. We find romantic love, we find parental love, we find friendly love, we find the love, if you could call it that, between teacher and student, right? It's going down on the, on, the, on the ladder. But from a spiritual perspective, as it's going down materially, it's actually going up. The relationship between the student and the teacher is pure. I mean, it's a sharing. The teacher has to be qualified, of course, and he won't exploit the disciple, the student. When we find, what, what do we find? When we find in the, in the society, in the news, that the, the teacher exploited the student, this is headline news, right? It's going everywhere. How bad. So it, it gives us some idea of how the, the purity that is expected in that kind of relationship between disciple, uh, or between student and teacher. It's a pure relationship in which there's no taking. The teacher's not taking. The teacher's just giving the knowledge. The student is taking the knowledge submissively and so forth. He or she is there for that. And the relationship doesn't move in any other direction, which would compromise that, which would become more exploitative, exploitative and, and less pure. So it's just the opposite, I want to say, in material life, that the dasya bhakti, that is highest ideal. Therefore, in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's lila, we find this dasya bhakti takes precedence. Because Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna in his acharya lila, Krishna acting as the acharya. So we approach Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in dasya bhakti, and in the context of doing that, we can find ourselves tasting Sakyabhav, Vatsalyabhav, Madhuryabhav in Krishna Leela. So, materially speaking, as I say, the relationship between teacher and student, this is the high end of loving reciprocal dealings. Here you'll find the purity of, of giving and receiving. And there's a, it's a detached also. Kind of love. The teacher is equal to all the students. Of course, if one brings an apple, then it's another thing. <laughs> or if one becomes more eager to know, <laughs> then of course, the more attention will be given. But he or she, the teacher, determines the nature of his or her relationship with the student on the basis of the measure 
to which, the extent to which the student is interested in the topic, putting in the time, putting in the effort, and so forth. So here we come in the Gita to this point. Uh, Arjuna has become now the student, so he stands to gain so much from Krishna. And the, the whole course of the Gita takes a turn here. For, now for balance of 18 chapters, Krishna will take the position of the Guru. Then later, in the fourth chapter, we find another significant reference to Guru Tattva. It's probably the most uh, famous verse in this regard in the Gita. And in the fourth chapter, of course, the subject is knowledge. Gan Yoga. And in the context of speaking about knowledge and, the, and how knowledge arises out of sacrifice and so forth, and uh, about various types of sacrifice and the sacrifice of knowledge itself and so forth, Krishna suddenly turns and says, what? Tadvidhi pranipantena Podiprashnena sevaya podakshantite gyanam gyanina statva darshina. So, this is now a very direct reference to the principle of a guru. Previous reference I cited in the second chapter was a little bit indirect, but easy to draw from that what uh, the significance of Guru Tattva is, the relationship between the student and the disciple. After this, it'll come again, of course, in the 11th chapter, Krishna mentions that he sees Krishna as the guru, the father, the mother, and everything, and he's showing himself as the universe. Then the 13th chapter, Acharya Upasana, worship of the guru, is mentioned as one of the things that constitute knowledge. In the 18th chapter, the uh, serving of the, of, of the guru is mentioned as one of the things that constitute austerity of the body. Some mention of the principle. But here, and in the second chapter, there is significant references. Here in the fourth chapter, the subject is knowledge, and it's kind of summed up here. If you really want knowledge, different ways to arrive at it, but this is the best way. You know, they say that real men don't ask questions. I've heard that. I always ask questions. So now he's a bit of an andro- and androgynous figure, actually. <laughs> it has a virileness uh, to it. At the same time, it has a very feminine side, compassion and kindness, and uh, prepared to ask questions also. Easiest way to find out, to ask a question. So, of somebody who knows, hopefully. And so, this idea is brought up here. Tadvidhi pranipatena. Um, Prabhupada once was sitting with uh, some of his students, and uh, forgive me, some of you have heard this story before, but it's worth repeating. And one of his students was studying at the university, so he brought a teacher over to the evening darshan to meet with Prabhupada. And so he was a teacher of theology, and so in the course of the talk, he raised his hand and he asked a question, and he said, he asked, what is God? And so Prabhupada said, what is this? You're a teacher of theology? And you, you pose, he's <laughs> very frank with the man, you pose yourself as a teacher about God and you're asking me who God is? What kind of teacher are you? This was his idea. I guess he didn't care that much for theology. So he turned to his student who had invited this gentleman and said, what do we call this? And he said, Prabhupada, we call this cheater, not teacher, which was a kind of a phrase that prop would say, they are cheaters, not teachers, you know, he would say something. So then <laughs> the man said, no, I'm, I'm inquiring 
submissively. And Prabhupada said, do you know what is in submissive inquiry? He said, yes, tadvidhi, pranipatena. He quoted this verse from the Bhagavad Gita. So it sounded like he knew what he was talking about. But Prabhupada said to him, this is the kind of thing that we call um, kind of a spiritual genius. What is the term? Shastra Nipun. In Bengali, then, Bengali, then this is uh, Krishna's Kaviraj used this term when he describes the superlative devotee, Shastra Nipun. He's echoing Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, Sri Rupa Goswami's work, where he, where he writes about the superlative devotee and the, and the intermediate devotee and the, and the neophyte in terms of their ability to tread the path and so forth. Kaviraj Krishnadas kind of takes that section and merges it a little bit with the Bhagavat section, which speaks about realization of different levels of devotees. So he says, Shastra Nipun, who is a superlative devotee, then he has or she has a scriptural kind of genius. So he uses that term. It's very nice because we... Shirupa's term is more like he, he knows the scriptures very well. He can cite the scriptures very effectively. Of course, that means with some realization he can cite them in a way that bring out the import and so forth. But it also means something more than that. It means a kind of a spiritual a genius that you say these like one-liners that just, you know, they're just perfect and <laughs> and they bring the thing to another level. So Prabhupada was very good at that. Anyway, the man was quoting the verse. He said, yes, Tadviti, Pranipatena. And Prabhupada said, that is not Pranipat. He said, see all these boys here, we are all young men, this is Pranipat. And he said, he went like this. They all had shaved heads. You know? <laughs> so they said, this is Pranipat. Pranipat here, the word is used. We should come and to the Guru, Pranipat means surrendered. So he said, this is what it means to inquire submissively. Not that you, that you, and, and you know the meaning of that verse. He's quoting the verse. And Prabhupada saying, you don't know the meaning of the verse. This is what it means. It's very heavy, darshan, you can imagine. It's heavy. <laughs> People would feel a little uncomfortable, maybe. Prabhupada is like, not very, you know, tactful here. But <laughs> that may be or may not be. His disciples got the point, and that's what he was concerned about. The man got some sukriti, Prabhupada knew he's not going to take up the mission at this point in, in disciple life and sadhana bhakti and so forth, but to teach us something. What is pranipat? So, pranipat means you come carrying wood. This is the famous statement of the Upanishad. He's carrying wood. Means what? To light the fire. And the fire is fire of, of sacrifice. So he comes carrying wood. He's bringing the ingredients to assist in the sacrifice. And of course you'll find out that it's him that's going in the fire. He's the main ingredient. So, with this in mind, Pujapad Sridharmarsh once commenting on this verse, he said, we should come to the Guru with a one-way ticket. He said, cutting a one-way ticket, not with a return ticket. One time in West Bengal, in Mayapur, Sri Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Prabhupada, he organized a festival and invited many people. And there were theistic exhibits and so forth that made different philosophical and theological points and whatnot. It went on for a few days. And kirtan and discourse and prashad and so forth. And then at the end, or towards what appeared to be the end of the festival, he came forward and gave a talk and he said, it's very nice that you've all come. So many people have come. 
and uh, we've put a nice festival on for you, and everybody's, yeah, it's so nice, so nice. And he said, so in all of this, we've not asked anything of you. That's all for free. Yes, yes, oh, very nice. But I have one request only, one small request. And so they thought, well, you know, sure, sadhus invited us here, he's got a small request. What does a sadhu need or want? They have no wants, so whatever your request is, certainly we can satisfy you. So with openness, they, they implored him to please ask what he might. And he said, my request is, don't go home. You stay here with me. We do this all the time. <laughs> and of course, they all, you know, shriveled and <laughs> found a way out. So coming with a, with a one-way ticket, this is the, I'm here, I'm here to stay. This is where I'm anchored. I'm connected here to the whole. I'm the part, and this is the connecting link to the whole. And uh, I'm not moving from there. I'm not budging. I'm on a... Sh- on a leash, it might be short, it might be long, but I'm on, on a leash, something like this. This is the, in the least, the spirit of this pranipat. So here, this principle of guru is being talked about in a very pragmatic way for us. We understand the words. Tadvidhi, this is, you will know that. Tadvidhi pranipatena, by coming in pranipat. And then pariprasnena. Prashna means inquiry, so to make inquiry, but it's not, and we spoke a little bit about this, I think, briefly in, in the morning, it's a, it's a relevant inquiry. This teachable moment that we talked about earlier that's coming in the second chapter in Arjuna's life, this is a, 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 an existential crisis. He, he's saying, Keami kene jatapatroi, to use Sanatana Prabhu's language, as uh, penned by Krishna as Kaviraj, who am I, why am I, why do I have to suffer? It's an existential crisis. And so that's going to foster a certain type of inquiry with a sense of urgency, not inquiry just to uh, titillate one's intellect, satisfy one's curiosity, and so on. So relevant and submissive inquiry. And if that inquiry is in place, then answers will come. There can be doubts, no doubt, and they should be placed before the teacher, then he or she will answer, and the answer will be supported by a body of revelation, sacred texts, and so forth. And when, as the inquiries are satisfied, then proportionately there is the third thing mentioned here, sevaya. Pranipat means adho-guru-ashraya. We come and sit, and for good reason. We have good reason to think we might find out something here important. And I have something important that I, that's pressing that I need to know. Without knowing, I'm feeling my life will not be worth living. I must know. I once, once was speaking to a fellow about the idea of answering important questions about like death, understanding death, and so forth. And he said, well, you know, look, there's a lot of traditions. What am I supposed to do? Go around and ask everyone and, you know, I said, yeah, <laughs> you're, supposed to be, you're supposed to be so preoccupied. This is real student of, uh, in spirituality, so preoccupied with finding a solution to what is apparent to you. There's a sense that the idea of living in a world or in relation to things that don't endure is unappe- unappealing. It makes life, the idea of living, troublesome. I mean, as a very young man, before I met Prabhupada, I, I used to sit and think, 
what will I be, cowboy or an Indian, or what, you know, what will I be? And I would think of this, and then I would play it out in my mind how far it would go, and I thought, no, that doesn't, it's, it's uh, temporary, it's, it was kept coming, it's not a, it doesn't, I, I was seeking a permanent solution to the, what I saw was the problem of life, which I didn't quite understand at the time, but was actually the impermanence. Impermanence is a problem if, in fact, we are an enduring entity. And we are, that's the teaching of the Gita. We are an enduring entity, so impermanence becomes a problem. It doesn't sit well with us. The sense of self is arising, of, of the actual self is arising. There will be some, that's why in Buddhism there's no problem with impermanence. <laughs> there's no self that endures. So they have to come to grips with impermanence. They philosophize about it. But in Vedanta, then, there is a self, and it's an enduring unit of consciousness. It's the observing factor of the ever-changing material phenomenon that's here today and gone tomorrow. And that sense of impermanence doesn't sit well with that which endures. So, anyway, I would trace it out in my mind. That doesn't endure, that doesn't endure, where does that end up? And enough of that, I, then I, I searched and looked for something enduring, and then I found. So, this kind of uh, spirit, this is the kind of inquiring that is very practical, pragmatic, and uh, it takes the spiritual life um, down, if you will, from the realm of theory and and very um, often beautiful and flowery ideas about the absolute. I mean, we can speak very poetically about that, but when we speak about how to get there, people will find they've got something else to do. That's not very palatable often. We can speak about love, that's very, well, that's very nice, but then when we speak about sacrifice that's at the heart of love, then it will be less appealing and we'll find we have other, more important things to do and, and to think about. So the point here is that nature of the inquiry that's being discussed in the word pariprashnina is that as the inquiry is made, it's of a certain nature such that as the inquiry is made and the doubt is cleared, then correspondingly, there is sevaya, seva, there is service. In other words, as a result of the inquiry and the subsequent answer, doubts are cleared so that one can move. In the words, we're living in kind of a suspended animation. We have doubts. I mean, right here, we have so many doubts, we can feel them. And art, if you will, of, of a person in my services to feel the doubts and try to talk in such a way that if I can capture your your mind and your heart a little bit, then you've, you'll actually listen. <laughs> and the doubts, the defenses will be, be dropped. You know, people listening, they accept that, I don't know about that, I'm not sure about that. And, and if you can capture them, their heart, then they stop doing that. The function of intelligence is to doubt, it has its value but it has its downside also. If, in other words, if we move in life with a intelligent kind of intelligence-ruled mode of operating, then that will be a proceed with caution, won't it? Hmm, maybe. I'll think about that. <laughs> Let me think about that. It should indicate to us that an intelligence-ruled life, 
as good as that may be, compared to a, a sense-ruled life that's not based on reason, as good as that may be, it falls short of what we're actually looking for. We're not looking to proceed with caution. We want to be at home. At home, then, that we don't exercise that same kind of caution. When mother just says, eat this, oh, she loves me, and it must be good, so... We don't say, what'd you put in it, Mom? <laughs> we might, nowadays, but... <laughs> you think you get the point, but in a foreign land, we'll wonder what's in it, what's in the bottle, and so forth. So we're proceeding with caution, but at home, then all the caution is dropped. Home is in the heart. So for home-going, a home-knowing man is required. And he or she then will speak in such a way that we think that, that hits home, that touched my heart. And I have to move accordingly, because wherever the heart is, that's where we go. That's where we are. So when the inquiry is of an appropriate nature, with a sense of urgency, then the answer comes and it translates into service so that this suspended animation in which we live, so to speak, from a spiritual perspective, doubting as we are, the doubts are removed and then there is movement. Now this is a different kind of movement than the previous movement. Like I've said before, we cannot be peaceful until we find love. So we're moving, moving, trying to find love. I mean, just using a material example. And cannot be satisfied until we find love. Then when we find love, uh, then do we sit still? No, that's a wild ride also. But it's of a different nature now. It's full of many troubles. It's full of union and separation, all kinds of problems, but we don't get off of that ride. We're not looking to end it. Of course, it's a limited <laughs> usefulness to speak about it in material terms, but I think you get the basic idea. So love is a kind of a movement, and spiritual life is actually alive, and it's not simply sitting still, this idea of bhakti. It's post-liberated movement. There's movement that, uh, that is not well thought out, driven as we are by our sensual demands. And there's movement that's well thought out. We move in the direction of good guidance and ask with a sense of urgency that which is relevant to our progress. We get answers, the doubts are cleared, and we can move, but we're moving in another way now. And that's called sevaya. Therefore, it's not, it's not common in the devotee circles to say, okay, enjoy. It's not that common. <laughs> that whole other idea that happiness comes from service. We may say it, but think about it a little differently, to serve. So this kind of movement, this is, um, as the doubts are cleared, then we can move freely. When the teacher speaks in such a way that it, as I say, hits home, touches the heart, then we know that we should now take that as a building block for a life, a spiritual life. This is submissive hearing. It's not so easy to do, you see. Because how many times do we hear a point that really we know that's true, but then we don't make it part of our, our life? We, it goes and touches our heart, and then we let it, the mind and the intelligence rationalize. That was a great point. I was so inspired by that. Give it a couple of days. <laughs> we'll rationalize it in a way and carry on as usual. This is not what we, what we want to do here. 
We are pressed to know why, what I say, what the meaning of life is, so we can find it. And oftentimes we find it, and then we just go on with our ordinary life and we're satisfied that I know what the purpose is. <laughs> I know the meaning of it. I don't do it, but I, so, you know, I don't really know it either. But we deceive ourselves. Such is the uh, power of the intelligence to exercise a sleight of hand. It's very expert. See, this intelligence is a very subtle thing. In Gita, the, there's a hierarchy in, of material stuff, if you will. There are the things that are the objects of our senses, the forms, the tastes, the smells, and so forth, the sounds. And then there are the senses. When the Gita speaks of senses, it speaks of not the ear that we see, but a subtle type of sense in the subtle body that works through this external organ. So it's a hierarchy. And then from there we go to mind. Mind above senses. And above mind, intellect. And above intellect and categorically different, you. Sahara. The self, he says. So as we go up the material hierarchy then to intelligence, for example, it's much more subtle substance. The mind says, I want to do this, but intelligence might say, yeah, but it's not good for you. There's that power of discrimination. But often the intelligence becomes overridden by the mind's demand. It forms a, a union with the demands of the senses and the oppression of the mind. And that what makes man a very dangerous animal, you know, equipped with reasoning to pursue his brutal purposes and his exploitation, his taking and so forth. Most dangerous. But intellect is very subtle also, so its way of deceiving is different and more difficult to trace out than the way in which the senses may deceive us. We can understand very readily, oh, in the night I thought there was a person, but it was a tree. My senses deceived me. I saw a rope. I thought it was a snake. Oh, well, put the flashlight here, I see it, and there's nothing to be afraid of. So my senses deceived me. That's very obvious. But when our intelligence deceives us, it's very subtle. So it's, it's more difficult to recognize. It has a great power to affect sleight of hand. It rises to the point of such, as we're discussing, in spiritual circles, we may, by the force of our intellect, deceive ourselves into thinking we know. When our actions speak much louder to someone who actually knows. So sevaya, this is a very important word here. The pariprashnena the kind of inquiry that fosters upon its being satisfied service. We're learning very much about the guru here by talking, you might note, about the disciple's disposition. Here it says, one should approach tatpadarshina, samadarshina, tatpadarshina, one who has seen the truth. We talked about this this morning also. This is the side where the guru is mentioned. We'll get to that, but so much is being discussed here about the disposition of the student. We look for a good guru. I'm looking for a good student. That's hard to find. <laughs> you know, it's a rare, you know, rare species out there. And of course, who is a good guru? That means a good student. Who's a good student? Who's a good servant? That is a guru. Because the subject that he or she is to teach, is service. This is what we call achinta veda ved. Achinta veda ved, it means 
It's a term for the metaphysic of Gaudiya Vaishnava. It literally means simultaneously one and different. We say that love of Krishna is one with Krishna and different from Krishna. It's different enough to talk about it. So we call love of Krishna Radha, for example. And then there's Krishna. Radha personifies love, the perfect love. And Krishna personifies the perfect object of love. If we have love, we have to direct it somewhere. So Krishna is the perfect object of love, and Radha personifies the perfection of love for the perfect object of love. And the two are one and different at the same time. Krishna is Radha's love for him. In other words, when love and bhakti reaches that pitch, this is how the Absolute appears as Krishna. It means, do what you want with me, basically. This is Krishna in relation to Radha. He becomes subordinate to that love. So in relation to what we're talking about here, the student and the guru are one and different at the same time. After all, you think about it. Is there any meaning to a teacher without students? <laughs> is there any meaning to a student without teacher? So you have to have both. One makes the other, so to speak. So it's appropriate then here that the, in the discussion about the guru in this verse, there's discussion about the nature of the disciple. He has to be pranipat, pariprashnena. That means submission. We don't come in a challenging way, but uh, we come and sit with a, with a sense, pranipat, with a sense that this may turn out to be a good thing for me. I should pay attention. I don't necessarily, it may not be, but I have some sense that uh, I make the journey into the forest here and uh, meet the, the Swami or Swamini, as may be the case, and then inquire. And sometimes even we have inquiry that we don't voice, but we find it's answered. And so a sense of urgency comes to us to move. We become free from a doubt that's causing us to live in a suspended state of our animation is, is, is suspended, so we go forth. So anyway, all this talk about the student is very important. And if we study the nature of the student, this is how we'll find a guru. People go out with a checklist, you know. Okay, I'm looking for a guru, and he's going to be this, and he won't be that. And he'll be this, and she'll be that, and, and they got their checklist. So this is not the way, of, I mean, we should know something about it, <laughs> theoretical knowledge and so forth. but. We should know, first of all, this was my experience. When I read Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita many, 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 many years ago for the first time, the thing that stuck out to me most is, I've got to find a guru. It was so nice, too, because, you know, I've, I've got to find a guru. This was, the, the, the book, you know, there's only a couple places it's mentioned, right, in the text, but I, it was coming out very clear, I had to find a, a, a guru. Of course, the one who wrote the book would have been a good choice. <laughs> That's why I ended up. But uh, you know, he, much as he talks about the principle, he also deflects attention from himself very beautifully. So anyway, with this kind of uh, urgency, as they say, we should, we should look. And if we go with a checklist and so forth, then we, we sometimes, I find people, they go with it. I want the best guru. What they're really saying is, I'm really good. <laughs> I'm really good. And so, this is like, doesn't help. It uh, doesn't help. And, and you can find, of course, fault anywhere. 
it's quite possible. So they go with the checklist and they're looking with their reasoning and they're very cautious and so forth. But there's a place for that. I appreciate that. I understand that. But what really is important is the urgency, the sense that Arjuna expressed earlier, the need for help. And as much as that is in place in the words, as much as we culture the disposition of a student, as much as we'll meet a guru. Hmm? Because the two are one and different at the same time. Wherever there is Radha, there is Krishna. <laughs> That's for sure. So wherever there is this kind of inquiring spirit, this kind of willingness, if I could find someone whom I could count on, I'd put my chips there or something like that. A willingness. Then we would have a chance to see. So some talk about the disciple and some talk about the very briefly here about the guru. It says Tatvadarshina. So we talked about that a little bit this morning. It's a popular idea now that the idea of the guru is something that can be, you know, we did that. Let's move on. You know, that was sixties. The gurus came and you know some of them were okay, a lot of them were a disappointment and uh and we didn't know anything about Vedanta, about yoga, you know. Now yoga, when I was young, you know, you could be beaten up for eating yogurt, you know. And uh, yoga was about as popular as yogurt, which was like something from Russia, you know, Eastern Europe or something. <laughs> so things have changed, so, hey, you know, we make our own yoga, right? Make our own yogurt, too. <laughs> but... Uh, we don't, what do we need a guru for? We needed a guru. There was, there was some mystery about the whole thing. A guy came, you know. And, but now the information is out and about. We have the internet. I can get out and find out about anything. So the guru, after all, is just someone that's giving information. And they tend to hoard it so that they, you know, they get some adoration and distinction and so forth. And so let's dispense with this principle and move on. We're modern people. And I can understand how centuries ago it would have been important. There weren't publishing houses and, and the sacred texts were not readily available and so certain people would keep the texts in India, for example, and they would, they would teach from them and people didn't have the books to read themselves so they needed the teacher and so, you know, it had some utility then, but now that's, those days are over and so end of the guru period, we're beyond that. I hear this, you know, outside of the Gaudiya circle, within the Gaudiya circle, in a little bit different language also, but the same idea. It's a process, right? Chanting, and we know the process, so we're good to go. <laughs> Something like that. This is not what the Gita is teaching, and for good reason. Therefore, Tattvadashina. There's two things. Samatpani Shrotriyam. Brahmanishtam. Samatpani, that's us. We bring, the, bring water carry wood, and on his part or her part, the guru's part, is what? Srotriyam. That means, Srotriyam means heard. So he or she has heard sufficiently from the sacred text, from revelation, and can represent it theoretically. That's fairly important. Can give the logic and the reasoning, explain the meaning of the text in, in context and with relevant examples in, in relation to the, today's world, that's all important and helpful. But the second part of the qualification is more important. If the first one is not in place, the second one will suffice on some level. But if the first one is in place and the second one is wasn't, then it will fail us. 
samatpani srotriyam means he's heard. So we can represent the theory. And brahmanishtam. Brahmanishtam. Now we're talking about magic here. Now the, the mystic, the mystical in the mystic comes into play. Brahmanishtam. It's not just a theory, in other words. He or she has some standing. Nishtam in Brahman. Standing on different ground. Otherwise, how can he turn his back on the whole, on the call of the world? It's not an empty promise. There's ground to stand on. And it's firm. The ground of Brahman. That now we stand on ground that's not firm. It's always moving. The ground is shifting. It's a problem. We want stability, but the ground is shifting. We've invested ourselves in quicksand. It's going that we bought a plot. It looked good, but it was quicksand. The whole house was sucked into the ground. It was gone. Back to the bank. (laughs) I bought my property, and I found out it belonged to somebody else. And I paid for it for many years. It still wasn't mine. Now it's gone. So the ground is shifting. We're in a unit of eternity. We're investing in a temporal. So finding some frustration. How can we get uh, firm ground to stand on? That is Brahman. Brahman is the underlying ground out of which arises this material phenomena for a while, for a day, long day, and then it again retracts, expands, retracts, in accordance with the principle of karma, it expands, it retracts. It's depicted like this, as the, the dream of Vishnu. Vishnu had a dream, let there be a world with people like myself, and we'll all be happy together. And he dreamed it out, and it became a problem, it became a nightmare. So again, <laughs> turn that off. <laughs> and then he later tried again, breathed it out. The word, it's coming, it's going, coming and going. But he's the ground to stand on. Vishnu, Brahma, Brahmanishtam. So standing on that ground, that is guru, means heavy. The word means heavy also. Can I be blown away by so many ideas and currents of thought and so forth? Nishtam, not budging from that. Whether people follow or not, that doesn't make any difference. He's not going anywhere. A god sister of mine, very nice god sister named Mahara, she wrote, she wrote a little, like many of you, a little poem or a little essay about what uh, your relationship with uh, me has meant to you over the years. She wrote one last year, it was very nice. And this year I read it, I said, just, she understands me. It's incredible. Then just after I read it, I got an email from her. She said some other things. I thought, well, she really understands me. It was very nice. And one of the things, anyway, one of the things she said is, through all of this, and some of you know what all of this is, that's happened in the last, you know, so many years since Gaudiya Vaishnavism, our particular lineage, came to the Western world. So many, um, so many things. Through all of this, she said, you are standing there, you know, like a, something like that, like a lighthouse, standing there. How do you manage to sort it all out and all? You must be... She said, he must be an eternal associate of Prabhupada. (laughs) So, anyway, she said some nice things. But this idea, Brahmanishtam, he's not going anywhere. When I joined this mission of Prabhupada, I don't know why, but I was just joining, and before I was initiated, 
I said to myself, this is that thing that I was searching, that job I was looking for, or that occupation, that thing to do. What will I be? This is what I will be. I'll be like him. I'll be his servant. And I thought to myself, and I always remember this, I said, you know, if everybody else leaves this, I'm not going anywhere. Even if everybody else who's involved here, you know, decides, well, we did that. We're not going to, I'm not moving from this. But that's been my, <laughs> my good fortune. I came in this world with Nishtam for this. Now we go from there. So it means this in relation to the Guru. Shrotriyam is one thing. He or she must have some knowledge. And not only that, but not theoretical knowledge only, but Tattva Darshina. Darshina means to see. So has seen what he or she is talking about. And from there there's no return. Yadgatvana nivartante tadama paramamama. Anabritihi shabdat, anabritihi shabdat. So this then defeats the idea that, well, the guru is, you know, the information is there. It's a process, right? You chant, you know, you can read it in the book. Everybody's got the book. The teacher, well, maybe, okay, let's give him a break. We'll have a teacher. Call him a teacher, you know, respect him to some extent. That's okay. But that's not such a big thing. No. Brahmanishtam, even if he doesn't know the book, he knows the book, is the point. Even if he doesn't know the, know the language and, and so forth, cannot present it very thoughtfully, but is standing in that, that person's company we want. We want to stand in the company of such a person that we have a sense that will cause our bhakti to grow, that kind of association. As Jiva Goswami said, service to the guru, when we make Guru Bhakti, that which is the center, and Krishna Bhakti orbits around that, that is more pleasing to Krishna. Even if you don't do any of the chanting, any of the meditation, any of the archan, any of the practices, you do this, you will get prem. So this dismisses this idea that because the information is available, then what more is the Guru? But an inf- He's not an information board, no. Pujapat Sridhar once said to us, I'm not an information board here. We're teaching about service. So, an example that compels us to serve. And some, some blessing is there. Some power to bless. This is important. Some power to bless. So, Brahmanishtam. That we want. That is mentioned here. Tattva Darshina. Once Prabhupada was asked, are you Samadarshina? Similar idea. He said, I, maybe I may not be. But I, uh, I, I follow whatever my Guru Maharaj has said. I have Guru Nishta. This is my qualification. Brahma Nishta, Guru Nishta. So, some words here from the Gita about the principle of Guru. Are there any questions? There's supposed to be questions. So, <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. Um, when you were talking about um, senses and then the mind being higher than the senses and then the intelligence, but when the consciousness contacts the mahat kind of the pardon the material stuff if you will, poetically, through the glance of Vishnu, then there's, there's like a 
kind of like an explosion, if you will, like a big bang. And there's, a, there's an identification. It's like if you look in the mirror or something like that. Wow. Consciousness sees itself in relation to matter. And there is an identification that happens at that point. That's what we call ankar, false ego. That's the root then. And then the intelligence forms and mind and so forth. In relation to the gunas, there's a development of the stuff, if you will, in, the, in a particular shape of matter. So I'm not sure exactly what your question is, but that's the position of ahankar. And the spirit of the ahankar, the false ego, is that I'm an enjoying entity. And so this is uprooted in bhakti by cultivating the, the ego of service. That I'm, I'm a serving entity. I'm a unit of, of giving and serving, not of taking. Another question? You were talking about the fickleness of the mind, and um, you said, oh, hey, Vaishnava Kaur a couple of weeks ago, and one of the six practices of the mind was to reveal one's mind and confidence. Mm-hmm. And I know for myself, there's so much flickering, you know, it's, it's to reveal your mind to you know, a spiritual person. There's so much that comes and goes, like you were saying earlier, it comes out, wait a few days, it's changed, and so could you just speak a little bit about how to do that in a proper manner? Mm-hmm. Well, really what that is talking about is that when we are living the life of a sadhaka, that means a spiritual practitioner, and then our identification is such, I'm first and foremost a sadhaka. First we'll think of ourselves as a sadhaka. Now you may not even be doing that. You may think I'm a something else. Oh, and I also, right, I also do bhakti. Uh, I'm something else. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a teacher. I'm whatever. And that we have to move away from to the point where we get to thinking I'm a sadhaka. That's what I do. And the other things are there too, but they're in the background. Mm-hmm. So there's a shift. The, you know, I'm, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a this or that, but first and foremost, I'm a sadhaka. And these things are moving around that and some attention is being given to them as much as is necessary and so forth. From that point of thinking, I'm a sadhaka, I'm going to sit down and do my sadhana and I'm a sadhaka, there'll be another shift where I don't think I'm a sadhaka. It's not a calculated thing where I think I'm a sadhaka. It's natural. And then the result of the sadhana starts to bear fruit. One starts to see oneself not as a spiritual practitioner, but one sees oneself in relation to what one's practicing. There's a fruit. That means to say, of the practice, there's a fruit. One starts to see oneself in relation to the fruit. So this is a a progress. So, we have to get to the point of thinking ourselves as a sadhaka. Then we will have thoughts that are our result of our practice. And then in confidence, we'll reveal them to the guru. And the guru will say, very good. Yes, you should go in that direction. You should think like this. You're getting it. Something like that. On a very basic level, it could be questions about scripture and so forth that you're inquiring about on a higher level. 
you're developing a sense of self in relation to the practice, an, an ego that's a, it's developing as a, as a servant, and it's taking a shape, and so you're inquiring about that. This is the kind of inquiry. Therefore, understandably, the things that are circling, orbiting, you know, between your ears, you're thinking, it says reveal your mind and confidence, but I don't think I want to talk about that. That seems like it would just be a burden to him. You're right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, there may be some, you know, there's little gray areas in between where, you know, certain things it may be worth bringing up and, and so forth, and it can help resolve them on a certain, on a lower level. But really, we're talking about, what was the song? It's talking about a life of, of a sadhaka and living in sadhu sangha and so forth. So that should bring things on our mind that are relevant to the, to the relationship and so forth. The problem is that we've got all kind of other things. I mean, we, we still think I'm, I'm more that I'm a mother than I am a sadhaka, you know, or that I'm whatever, father or this or that or the other thing. And we may be those things to some extent, but they should be put in perspective. I mean, we wouldn't be here if somebody didn't walk out on their family, right? Someone didn't put his family first. A.C. Bhakti Vedanta Swami probably walked out one day. Well, that's pretty radical. What about your kids, you know? So, you know, his family wasn't interested in spiritual life. He determined to, but enough that they were born Vaishnavas. <laughs> they weren't interested in that. They were getting in the way of what? Of his desire to pursue the thing. So he walked out. I mean, that's what he did. I don't know if he realized it. Just one day, hey, what happened to Abhai? Bala, you know, he's gone. He's walked out. He's walked out the door. That's it. With nothing. He became a beggar. You know, spiritual beggar. Begging for Krishna's mercy and power to do the bidding of his guru. And it's a song we sang before we sat down, as we sat before we begin to speak here. An example of that. And we're here because of that. But we think, you know, hey, I'm a mom first, okay, I'm a you know, devotee second, right? You know, that's got to change. And that's true. You know, or in the next life, who knows what your relationship with those people will be. They're your daughters or sons. If you make a relationship with them based on the truth of what we are, then you'll have a meaningful relationship with them in the future. You set the standard. They should come to that. So he walked out. We're here because of that. If I tell you, you should walk out, you think, I don't know, maybe I better need some space here. <laughs> Mars a little heavy. <laughs> okay, it's a heavy topic, yeah. That's, it's not a lightweight thing. So, so that's what it means. And then we share our mind and confidence, then the guru shares his mind and confidence. That's also what's on his mind. So who will he share that with? somebody who he has confidence in. And that confidence is won by, by sincere service and so forth. So, you know, look, I'll tell you one thing. I've been doing this for a while. And, um, you know, previously I was in ISKCON, which some of you are familiar with. It's an organization formed by my Guru Maharaj. And there were a lot of problems after he left, and especially in the, in the realm of spiritual authority. People very much misrepresented this was one of the reasons I left because I felt I would better fulfill his ideal independently of, of that. So I tend to be very kind of generous with people and 
And I understand that many, many devotees have been through difficult circumstances that followed the, in the wake of the disappearance of Prabhupada from the world, his leaving the world. So, you know, kind of open-minded and generous and, and so forth. And, but it can only go so far. If you know, I'm going to really be generous with you at a certain point, I have to, you know, turn on the heat and you, people have to make spiritual progress here. And uh, now's the time for that. So it's a heavy uh, topic, this idea of the relationship between guru and disciple. There's, we came for a heavy reason. Uh, we have to be reminded of that. Again, it's very easy. to. We came for a very heavy reason, and then we get the knowledge theoretically, and we, we tend to be satisfied with that, and then think, like I said earlier, we know. Yeah, I know, so now I know. Now I know the meaning of life, so I'll get on with my life, which has nothing to do with the meaning of life. That we shouldn't do. That we should avoid that. No, we should become, in the very least, sadhakas and siddhas. We're here to make gurus, not students. That's what we want. Hundreds of you, you know, who've really imbibed the teaching, theoretically put it into practice, and become someone of spiritual consequence. The world needs people like that. And we need that. We owe that to ourselves. That's what we come to this kind of thing for. That's what's on our mind. And there's a sense of urgency which makes the thing exciting. And the business of the guru is to keep that sense of urgency alive on our part, to kindle that. That will call our progress. So, what else? I have a question just in general. Like you said, coming from Eskan and, and the problem of spiritual authority. And it seems to me that, that the big issue is the shodhiyam, the uh, scriptural knowledge and being able to, to uh, explain the scriptures was there with many people. But they didn't have the information. They didn't have the preparation. So, because of that, there's a lack of confidence in many people because it's very difficult to ascertain who actually is Brahmanishtam. We have only our own subjective experience, conscious experience. So for the general body of population, how does one come to that? Yes, Mahara. <laughs> that requires some Sukriti, but um, I'll say another thing about that. I think that the Shrotriyam also is lacking in a progressive sense. In many Shrotriya means having heard from the scripture, so having theoretical knowledge. It's also lacking in certain circles, and so that's problematic, or to speak of the other. Both things may be lacking. I mean, and this is just generalizations, obviously. That's good everywhere, but to the extent that that's lacking, then it's going to come up short over time as well for people. But otherwise, your question is, to rephrase it, I think, is that, so if someone has theoretical knowledge still that we can ascertain because it's tangible and we can listen to the person or read what they wrote and so forth and find but how do we know that they have something that's invisible that's also part of the equation? How do we know they have they have Brahmanishtam? Even Arjuna <coughs> asks that question in the Bhagavad Gita in the second chapter. And Krishna answers it by speaking about things that you can't see practically. So it is a dilemma, isn't it? But um, the answer, I think, is that you have to go there yourself. You have to put yourself in a position to go there. And proportionately, then, you'll, you'll have the capability to see and, and discern. It's 
So again, the onus is on the student, sense of eagerness and um, interest in the subject matter is, um, to the extent that that's in place, I, I think there'll be a kind of a knowing, if you will, and um, to the extent that it's lacking, then understandably we may think that somebody disappointed us, but we may be the disappointing person or a good part of the half of the equation, so to speak. Yeah. You know, earlier in the beginning, toward the beginning of your talk, you spoke about the relationship between the teacher and the student being the most pure. Is that mm-hmm. understand correctly? I'm having a difficult time understanding that in the sense of thinking about Sakyaras and Vatsalyaras. What I said was Sakyaras is higher than Dasyarasa. Yes. But Salyaras is more intimate and intense generally than Sakyaras, and Madhuryaras is more intense. So you're asking, what am I saying? That, that, that I'm saying that if you take the material world and flip the whole thing, okay? And then in the material world, you have romantic love between people, right? You have parental love between parents and children. You have friendly love, and you have the love between the teacher and the student. On that end, the material world, the high end, is the relationship between the teacher and the student. On the spiritual side, the higher thing is, is, is Madhuri Rasa. When you flip the thing over materially, backwards, you know, perverted, you know, reflection idea, then the low end of the spiritual side becomes the high end. Because you just think about it now. The nature of the, as I said, the love between the student and the teacher is free from exploitation. The sharing is only of knowledge and so forth. Whereas when you go up the ladder materially with your friend or with your kids, your love for your kids or your love for your, for your lover and so forth, there's something else involved. It's not the sharing of knowledge. Often it's more of a relationship based on ignorance. So the relationship between the student and the, and the teacher is one for knowledge. The teacher doesn't exploit the student for his own purposes. There's a kind of a purity in that. Do you understand? So it's, I wrote saying? about it in Rasa, a book called Rasa. Uh-huh. A book I wrote called Rasa. Uh-huh. It, it's in that book. It, it's, it's played out in there. By reading it, you might get a clearer idea. But I'm talking about the reverse of the spiritual sure. as it's man, as it manifests here. Mm-hmm. So it's just merely explained the perversion of Kali Yuga or the material world because there's less at, quote unquote, less at stake between a, a student and a, and a teacher. Well, the exchange is, is, is a, that of knowledge. The teacher is giving knowledge, he's not taking, he doesn't exploit the student mm-hmm. for his own purposes and so forth. But when you, when you're say, when you, you qualify that by saying Ideally, if this if the teacher is purely motivated, yeah, and the student is motivated, but also in the material world, but it makes it sound like the relationship between uh, lovers is not purely motivated; it's, it's exploitive. But we find that sometimes the best relationships in the material world, as for instance, are when they try not to exploit, but they work in partnership to achieve a goal, so to speak. If they're motivated purely, mm-hmm. so to speak, yeah. So that also applies to. Parental, if you're motivated purely, if you're right. friendship, so right. then it would not be. It seems it would not be diminishing from right, but that's not a purely a material example. 
You're factoring in spirituality. Yes, yes. Of course, that's but a whole different thing. It seems there's the spirituality also between the student and the teacher when you're actually seeking truth. Forget the spirituality okay. altogether in the example I'm giving. Just forget spirituality. Just a purely raw material relationship. The relationship between the student and the teacher, what is it based on? Theoretically, it's based on student comes to get knowledge, the teacher comes to give knowledge. That's all, that's the exchange. Knowledge will set you free, it says at the university and so forth. Right. That's it, so that... But then what is knowledge? Well, we're just using a material example. Okay. Another question? Yes? Well, there's different ways to understand. Of course, the guru means to represent Krishna, so a relationship with Krishna is eternal. So the guru brings us in touch with Krishna. But also, he may have different gurus who help us in different ways. One guru will be most important. And that guru is, is a guru whose relationship with us will carry into liberated life as well. We'll be in his or her group there and have a relationship. So along the way, then we may find different gurus and they may help us in different ways and so forth. And in the course of all that, we find a guru who, whom we have that relationship with. That's the full-blown idea of the guru is eternal. Otherwise, the more general idea, well, guru represents Krishna, so he brings you in touch with Krishna, it's a, you have an eternal relationship with Krishna. But that particular Vaishnava also may, you know, there may be people who are for example, Prabhupada recruited very widely and so many people came. Some people are his eternal associates in a particular group and some people he's recruiting for the Sampradaya and they'll be placed in different places. They may not be in his group. They may go to Sridhar Maharaj's group. They may go to this one's group or that one's group. This may be the case. Does that help? You say in the spiritual world there's one prominent figure, one prominent guru. Group leader. Yeah, just like you find in the prayer of Narutam Thakur, when will Lokanath Goswami bring me to the lotus feet of Rupa Manjari and place me there? So Narutam was the disciple of Lokanath and he's aspiring that my guru would take me and put me in the camp of Rupa and I'll be under his direction there. That's the kind of idea. You know, like you may be initiated by a guru in this life and you may not perfect yourself, so you're going to come back in the next life and pick up where you're left off. You're going to find another guru. They're all representatives of Krishna. At one point, you meet a guru who, is, who you, you will be with in perfection as well. Not that the others won't be there also, but in that group. So, tomorrow is then the festival of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. begins at uh, 5 a.m. Sriman Gauranga Mahaprabhu ki jai. Gaurpurni Mahamotsava ki jai.